Last week, we examined uh, the larger story arcs of this chapter and how they relate to patterns that we've seen previously in Genesis and then um, later throughout Scripture. The woman uh, deceiving the tyrant is a big theme that we see here. Uh, It's the reversal of the fall of um, the serpent's deception of the woman. uh, And uh, this is the woman deceiving a serpent or a serpent figure. We also explored this theme of the holy harlot through Tamar and Rahab, how they were similar. uh, And how these anticipate the church, especially the bringing in of the Gentiles, uh, as signified in a holy harlot or a harlot made holy. And then lastly, we looked at uh, Judah as a repentant pastor. Now, if we compare this with Joseph's story, Joseph's story shows him as a savior. Judah's story shows him as one who is saved. Judah's story teaches how to get saved, repentance. Joseph's story teaches how to save, obedience. Judah teaches us that one must confess and repent in order to be saved. Joseph teaches us that one must be obedient in order to rule. Confession of sin leads to salvation. Obedience of life leads to the throne. Judah is the repentant pastor. Joseph is the obedient pastor. Both of these things are uh, inherent or given to the redeemed man, to the Christian Okay, so if we look at the first 11 verses of this passage, uh, it starts out with this descent. This is a dark time for Jacob's family. Um, We see Judah's descent prominently into Canaanite sin. And I didn't get a chance to look at this, but I'm pretty sure Hebron is, even in geographical elevation, is higher than where he's going here in uh, Timnah and Adullam. So there's actually actually a literal descent um, geographically, and then morally and spiritually Judah is descending. We also have uh, geographical descent uh, in a way with uh, Joseph down to Egypt. And then we also have uh, various forms of descent with um, Uh, Well, one particular form with Jacob uh, mourning for his son. There's this descent into mourning. He's inconsolable. So this is a dark time for Jacob's family. This is is kind of the the low point in the story of Israel's house. Uh, Another thing to note is that Joseph departs from his brothers uh, involuntarily. Uh, and Judah departs from his brothers voluntarily. There, there's kind of this parallel departure from the brothers here. Judah becomes friends with uh, this Adulamite named Hurrah. Hurrah is from Adullam. Adullam is a city uh, that's later captured by Joshua and the Israelites in the, the Canaanite pogrom. Um, and it's given as an inheritance to uh, which tribe, would you guess? Which tribe do you think it's Adullam? Judah. Judah gets Adullam. We're reading about Judah and Adullam. Later on, Judah's sons receive Adullam. Um, where else do we see Adullam in Scripture? Yeah. With David, what what's with David? What is that? What where what happens there? Yeah, it's it's a place of refuge. Sometimes a duelum is translated as refuge, um, and the story of David I think is anticipated here with Judah. 
this is um, this is also the same area where David kills Goliath. It's all kind of in the same similar area. But I think that there's a similarity here with, uh, with David in lots of ways. But one of the main ones is their inaction as patriarchs. Their inability to act justly on behalf of a woman named Tamar in both cases. Um, David fails to act on behalf of Tamar. Judah fails to act on behalf of Tamar. He treats her unjustly. Both have sons that treat a Tamar unjustly. Onan treats Tamar like a harlot. Amnon rapes Tamar. There's this uh, anticipation of, I think, what's going to happen with, with da uh, David. They're treating the woman poorly, this daughter poorly, and the father fails to avenge or to bring justice to the situation. In both cases, the kingdom is threatened. It's more obvious with the David uh, narrative, but it's, there, it's here with Judah. We went over this with the patterns of Genesis. What's the next thing that comes? What's the next thing that comes with brother murder, unlawful unions? What's the next thing that comes? Judgment. Judgment is coming for Judah's house. So the covenant is threatened. Judah's house is falling apart. Just as David's house started to fall apart after he failed to deal with Amnon, failed to treat Tamar well, these women are truly being abused. And uh, they, we need someone to treat the daughters with care. We need someone to be a good father to the Tamars. We need a heavenly father whose son will treat his daughter church with love. Okay, so Judah takes a, a wife from Shua. We don't know her name. She's nameless, but she's a Canaanite. Canaanite woman, daughter of Shua. Daughter of wealth. Shua means opulence. Judah is marrying into money. But his house is impoverished. She gives birth to three sons, and the first two die. What good is it to gain the whole world but to lose your soul or to lose your children? She gives birth to Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Ur means awake or guard or watchful. Onan means strong or vigorous. We have a Mesopotamian um, documentation that there are tribes in, in Mesopotamia that were named uh, Ur and Onan. Um, so it's likely that Judah's aligning himself with the Canaanites. He's naming them um, these names that are part of the cursed people. And then lastly, she gives birth to Shelah, which is in Kazib. And this is likely a place that's kind of spelled differently in the Joshua conquest. It's spelled uh, Azib. Um, it's another city given to Judah. But it's close to Adullam. It's about three miles west of Adullam. And the Hebrew word for Kazib, where she gives birth to Shelah, means deception. That's what we have in this story. We have a lot of deception. Uh, the firstborn Ur, Judah takes a wife for Ur, for his son. So we see this patriarchal choosing of the wife. The father chooses the wife for his son. But unlike Abraham and unlike Isaac, he, he doesn't choose a non-Canaanite woman. He chooses a Canaanite uh, woman uh, for Ur. But what happens, 
that's different than the, the previous stories of men marrying Canaanite women is that the son is very wicked and the woman is not. We're told Ur was wicked. And there's a play on words here. The word for uh, evil in Hebrew is ra, ra. So Ur is ra. Uh, uh, Ur is wicked, or if we anglicized it, uh, Ur erred. Er erred. That's what they're saying here. That's kind of a play on words. And so with, with Ur, we have the problem of the firstborn son, which of course is the problem of the first Adam. He's a sinful, wicked man. He's an Esau. He's an Ishmael. And God kills him. He sins, he dies. And then Onan is the younger brother. He has a chance to supplant his older brother. He has a chance to be like Jacob. He has a chance to be like Isaac. He has a chance to be like Seth. But does he do that? No. Judah tells him, Judah gives the word, go and take your brother's wife and raise up an heir for him. And this is enshrined in the law. It's, uh, it's called Leverett Marriage. It's in Deuteronomy 25. Describes precisely this situation. If, if, a, if a woman's husband dies, then the next of kin, which is the brother, comes in and he, and he the, the language is used of building up his brother's house. He raises up an heir for his brother. And if he doesn't do it, if he refuses to do it, the widow takes him to the elders and uh, she spits in his face. She removes his sandal and she says, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. And we get more insight into this, kind of weird, sandal removed, what is this? This, this kind of indicates certain kind of legal uh, possession and kind of sealing the deal type thing. Uh, but if we, we get more insight into this if we look at the story of Ruth. Uh, with Boaz, he's the, the and we, this word redeemer is used. He's the kinsman redeemer. He's like the brother who marries the widow. He's not the brother, but then it just goes to the closest relative. And so the brother, so if we look at that, we all are familiar with Boaz as the kinsman redeemer. Okay, Onan was supposed to be the kinsman redeemer for Tamar, and he refuses to do it. He has a chance to be like Christ. That's what, that's, that's what it ultimately boils down to, refuses to do it. And not only does he refuse to do it, because it's interesting, you look in the law, he's just put to shame if he refuses to do it. Onan didn't just refuse to do it. He married her, and then he refused to do it. So he's using her for his own gratification, his own selfish pleasure, and he's not fulfilling his duty as in giving her an heir. So he's treating her like a harlot. So God views this as wicked, God sees it as evil, and he kills Onan. If we look at the word, um, when, when he went into her, the Hebrew there, commentators suggest that um, this wasn't a one-time thing. It suggests a repeated type of thing. So this is his manner of life with Tamar, treating her in this kind of way. The word that we use, or the word in the New King James was emitted on the ground, which I think kind of blunts the, uh, 
sharpness of the word in Hebrew, it means that he destroyed his seed uh, or he ruined his seed. Um, some translations say spilled his seed, which I kind of, that, that one's okay a little bit. It's almost like blood. Really, Onan is trying to kill his brother. He, he's acting like it's more brother murder type type stuff going on here. He's destroying his brother. He doesn't want to build up his brother's house. He, doesn't, he only wants to use his brother's widow for his own pleasure. So he's a shameful and he's a, a selfish man, and he's driven by his own selfish pleasures, like his father. And he doesn't just have his sandal removed, but he has his life removed. Uh, the act of spilling seed is sometimes called onanism. This passage is often used for um, arguing against coitus interruptus or self-abuse, which coitus interruptus and self-abuse uh, can all be, um, are all wrong, or self-abuse is definitely wrong, coitus interruptus, there's biblical and natural law arguments against such practices for sure. But I think the primary sin that's going on here is his failure to build up his brother's house and this kind of selfish gratification that's going along with it. He's treating Tamar like a harlot rather than a wife. Okay, so the episode concludes with Judah sending Tamar back to her father's house. He sends her away and he says, wait for Shayla to grow up and I'll give you him as, your, as a husband. But we have this statement from Judah at the end of it. He says, lest he also die like his brothers. And as we know from the rest of the story, he did not intend to give Shayla to Tamar. And so he sends her out, and then he says, lest Shayla dies like the rest of my sons. So we have to read between the lines here, but if he's sending her away out of his house, and, he, and he's deceiving her, uh, and he doesn't ever plan to give Shayla because he's afraid that he might die like the rest of his sons, I think what's indicated to us is that Judah thinks Tamar is killing his sons. I think that there's a blindness here, just like Isaac. It's a blind patriarch, and he thinks Tamar is the one that's killing him. And you can imagine this, where he goes through this thought process of, maybe the Canaanites really are cursed, and they're killing all my boys. After all, we're the covenant people. This shouldn't be happening to us. And then they start dying. But Moses is very emphatic and very clear that the sons are dying because the sons are wicked. They're killing themselves. And so what we have here is this moment where uh, accursed people like Canaan with Tamar start acting like covenant people. And then the covenant people like Judah's sons start acting like cursed people. They can get cursed. And so that kind of category, that fluid category distinction is uh, the sin of the Jews, really, in the first century, kind of come into its, its fullness. But it can happen with us as well. And so that's something for us to, to keep in mind and uh, to see what, what Judah's doing here. The problem wasn't with Tamar. The problem was with his own sons. And you see that kind of familial affection often blinding you to, your, to the, the sins of your own, uh, your own kin. And then the last thing is comparing Judah to his father in the, in the wake of the death of their sons. What was Jacob like when Joseph died? Anyone remember? 
He was really sad. It says that he was, he was inconsolable. Nobody could kind of uh, get him out of his grief. It's pro- it was probably too much. And then Judah, nothing is said about, there's no grieving. Now, it, it, just because it's omitted doesn't mean he didn't, but there's no mention of it. And so it's almost like we see Judah as being very callous. Or maybe Jacob, Jacob uh, may, have been, may have been too emotional. Judah seems to be callous. There's not weeping going on here. We are told that he's comforted after his wife dies, though. Okay. In verses 12 through 19, we have, uh, we have the rest of our section. And uh, we have Tamar's deception here. So that was, that was Judah's deception, sending her out, saying, I'll give, you she- I'll give you Shayla when he's older, never intending to do that, because he doesn't want Shayla to die. But then Judah's wife dies. <laughs> Judah's wife dies. He does this lie to Tamar, and then Judah's wife dies. He becomes a widower. He goes to Timnah, and sometimes that's tra- translated as Timnath, which is there a Timnath around here? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay. So, next city. so there's um, there's another there's another Timna or Timnath in in script, or it comes up again. It's the same city, but it comes up again. Um, and well, let me let me let me explain what happens with Judah here. Let me summarize it. He is a ruler. He's a he's a pastor. He should be ruling his people, his family well. He's supposed to be a good patriarch ruler in the house of Israel, but he gives his authority away to a woman when he goes to Timnah. This happens again in Timnah later in Scripture. Does anybody know where? where? With who? Not that I know of. I don't think so. Did someone say it? Carly? No? Okay. It's Samson. Delilah is from Timnah. He goes to Timnah. He sees Delilah there. Delilah takes his strength, takes his authority. And it's the same kind of sinful, it's a strong man, controlled by his lust, and he loses his authority, he loses his strength. And that's exactly what happens with with Judah here. All right, so um, Judah deceives Tamar, and now Tamar is going to deceive Judah. Onan treated Tamar like a harlot, and now Tamar is disguising herself like a harlot. The theme of deception that pervades Genesis, uh, it's present here again. Um, It's also deception that involves goats and vestments. Here, Tamar, she has has vestments of a widow. She takes those vestments off. She puts vestments of a harlot on. And then there's a goat involved in the transaction. As one commentator uh, mentions, um, Judah is going to, he promises to give her a kid, but he winds up giving her a kid, giving her two kids, actually. So a kid is a young goat, and that's, that was what was part of the pledge there. Um, where else in Scripture have we seen goats and vestments used in a deceiving kind of way which gets, which garner, brings about righteousness from a patriarch. Who, right, Isaac, very good. Jacob puts on the vestments of a goat. He puts, on, he puts on the vestments of a sinful man to receive the blessing of his sinful father. 
Tamar puts on the vestments of a sinful woman to receive the blessings of that sinful father. Uh, and all of these things, we've worked through this before. It's difficult, but they are pointing to Calvary and what Jesus does on the cross. Jesus putting on the vestment, so to speak, of the sinful man, of the sinful woman, but being the righteous man, receiving the blessings of the Father. And that's how we receive those blessings. Okay. So Judah goes up. What's happening in Timnah? Why does he go up there? It's sheep shearing time. And sheep shearing time is a party time. It's time for celebration. It's time for festivities. We see this throughout scripture. We see festivities and celebrations associated with sheep shearing. It could be that Tamar was using this moment to take advantage of. She knew that there would be drinking and fun and kind of this, more, this moment of feasting. Later in the story uh, of King David, again, there's these, all these David parallels here with Judah, uh, which, of course, we might expect because David comes from Judah. But um, it's the time of sheep shearing when Abigail saves Nabal. So Tamar saves Judah, Abigail saves Nabal, both men acting foolishly, and it's a time of sheep shearing. Um, Abigail specifically saves, she saves Nabal from David's wrath, and Tamar is saving Judah from God's wrath by, getting, by eliciting this confession and repentance. It's also sheep shearing time when Absalom uh, avenges his sister. That's how he kills Amnon. It's the sheep shearing festival. Amnon gets drunk. He's in high spirits. And that's when he kills him. And so we see Amnon kind of writing this, or Absalom, writing this wrong with this absent patriarch during sheep shearing time. Tamar's doing something similar. She's writing this wrong because of this absent patriarch. Judah's actions here indicate that he's a man controlled by his appetites and his passions. He doesn't have them under his rule, so he's a bad ruler. He sees this harlot. He impulsively and sinfully decides he wants intercourse with her. He promises he doesn't have anything on him, so he promises to give her a goat. And she's like, well, I need to ensure that you're going to give me this young goat. And so she has him give him his signet, his cord, and his staff, which we had mentioned previously in the confession exhortation. Uh, the signet, uh, and so these, these things, the, the signet and the cord are, it's like, a, it's like, it's like your signature or the power of, uh, power of attorney. The, the signet is like, it was a cylinder. It was the cylinder, it had a hole through it. Um, tens of thousands of these have been excavated in archaeological digs. Um, it has a little hole in it, and then there's a cord that goes through it, and likely they just wore it around their neck, and so it's like your wallet around your neck. And what it does, it has an engraving on it, it has some kind of imprint that's your own personal imprint, and you would uh, roll it on some clay, and that would be like your signature. And you could buy stuff and pledge stuff, and th that was the way, that was your fingerprint. That was, that was your identity. And uh, Judah, <laughs> wanting to sleep with a harlot that he's never met before, he said, here, take, 
Take all of my, take my social security number. Take all of my credit cards. Take it. I mean, this is, it's, it's, it's sad, but it's comical. And then he gives them the staff, which uh, we've, we've talked about, the, sh the shepherd. He is a shepherd. The Judah, Jacob's sons are shepherds. So the staff is, not only does it come to signify you know, God's deliverance and power with Moses or even the priesthood with Aaron, but it's a very practical instrument for their livelihood. It's how he wins the bread. It's how he brings home the bacon. It's how he protects the sheep from wolves. It's how he guides sheep when he's needing to move the flock. So it's something that's integral to his career. <laughs> he's like, here, take it. Absolute idiot right here because he doesn't have his passions under control. Okay, so he gives her everything because he hadn't learned to rule his own body. Who's he acting like here? Again, if we look at it, he's giving away everything for, for a one-night stand. What does that kind of sound like? For this momentary, momentary physical pleasure, if you gave away everything for a moment pleasure. For a bowl of soup. For a bowl of soup, right. He's acting like his uncle. He's acting like Esau. He's giving it all away. He's giving his inheritance away for a bowl of soup. Giving away his property, giving away his wealth, giving away his authority. This son of Jacob is not ready to take Canaan. Canaan is taking him. The house of Jacob is not ready to receive the promised land yet. They need to learn suffering. They need to learn obedience. And that's why they're sent to Egypt. That's why they go to Goshen. Because they're not ready to take Canaan yet. They have to learn some things. And Judah shows us this. And it's not just Judah, but the rest of the sons, they go down to Egypt as well. They need to go down to Egypt, and they need to be like Joseph. Joseph was kind of the, the, the first one in to do this, to be low, to be brought low, to learn suffering, to learn obedience. And then he was given rule. And then the rest of Jacob's sons are going to have to be brought low before they can be brought high. Let's pray. The charge is this. Don't give away your authority. Rule yourself. Reign in your appetites. Keep them in check. Keep them in check. Be enslaved to nothing so that you are enslaved to no one, or rather that you are enslaved to Christ, that you are free to rule well in Christ. Keep your staff. Let it not depart from your hand. Judah gave everything he had to a woman. Instead, give everything you have to Christ. By doing so, you will be given your staff, and it will not depart. May God give you the dew of heaven, the fatness of the earth, the abundance of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you, and nations bow down to you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.